Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a superb show for you today. That's the adjective of the day, I suppose. Uh, what else do we have going on, Brianna? Well, our panel is going to get into the Ukraine bill and why Democrats and Republicans are slinging mud at each other over the $40 billion aid package. Plus, we'll discuss a new U.S. government watchdog report that has more info on the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. But first, President Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act to supposedly speed up the production and distribution of baby formula. Here is Biden yesterday announcing that policy. The Defense Production Act gives the government the ability to require suppliers to direct needed resources to infant formula manufacturers before any other customer who may have ordered that good. I'm also announcing Operation Fly Formula. That's to be able to speed up the import of infant formula and start getting more formula in stores as soon as possible. I've directed the Department of Defense and the Department of Health and Human Services to send aircraft planes overseas to pick up infant formula that meets U.S. health and safety standards so we can get it on the store shelves faster. The authorization comes just a week after former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki blasted Republicans for suggesting the Defense Production Act as a means to address the shortage. The production of, manu of uh, baby formula is so specialized and so specific that you can't just use the Defense Production Act to say to a company that produces something else, produce baby formula. It just doesn't work that way exactly. I guess it does. <laughs> <laughs> the new White House orders hit the House floor yesterday and approved a bill that would expand access to formula for low-income Americans. Only 12 Republicans voted in favor of the legislation. Democrats then added $28 million in funding for the FDA in hopes to prevent future disruptions and enhance safety inspections, according to the Washington Post. Now, Robbie, in fairness, was the question that Saki was responding to, was it about getting other companies? It seems like she was saying you can't get other companies to make baby formula. Right. And this is about enabling existing manufacturers to create baby formula. Right. And also, of course, shipping it from overseas, which is one of your recommendations and something you were hitting hard last week, no? Yes, which is why I'm a little frustrated when they say now we're in the midst of a crisis. Oh, yeah, we should import. The government should provide this assistance. We'll import more baby formula. Why don't we just, why weren't we importing more baby formula to begin with? Because then the price of baby formula would be lower, even during the non-shortage period, right? We're concerned about the cost of goods and services, of, of products. If you're allow more importing of, at least in theory, like that's like a basic economics lesson. It's supposed to work that way. If there's more of the supply, then the price of it would go down. I think that's a fair point because people have been pointing out that they've known that the shortage was coming for a while. As, you know, people knew back in February that this was yeah. coming down the pike. So there is a question about why some of these, um, you know, intermediate steps weren't taken at that time. I do think, you know, if you parse her language, she's saying, you know, European formulas that meet our standards are being shipped in. And I think they're obviously have to deal with some of the cooling and shipping issues that we talked about right. last week. So it looks like they you know, it's not just a free-for-all, and there's some safety We talked to a few days ago, uh, it was just Kim and I, maybe it was Monday, because mm -hmm. you weren't here. We talked to Peter Pitts, who's a former mm -hmm. uh, FDA uh, top person, and I asked him about the European baby formula, and he said, yeah, it, it's not a safety issue at all. Mm -hmm. He said it's a labeling issue. Well, no, it's we don't I, like the label. I, I saw that clip, and that was my understanding as well, but it's a safety issue and a labeling issue. The issue, the labeling issue is that it's not in English, right. and therefore people might not be able to dose it, right? You know, give their babies. It seems like it could be something we could work no, on. No, it's, 
it's something that they can work on, I think, is what they have been working on. Whether or not it should have taken as long as it did, I completely agree. I'm not sure what was going on there. But the issue is, and it's happening right now with formula, the formula shortage here in the States with American formula, that people are diluting formula because they're trying to stretch it, which is understandable why a parent would think that they should do that especially when they don't see how they're going to get more. But there are real serious health consequences for babies when you do do that. And people have been really warning folks not to take those kind of measures in their hands. So if already we're in a crisis because people are diluting formula because of scarcity, not being able to measure up the right amounts could also present similar kinds of challenges. And I understand that. Maybe, maybe the government could put out a little handy reference guide that this many <laughs> kilowatts of baby formula Kilowatts. Is, <laughs> okay. Okay, Dr. Robbie. <laughs> I knew that was wrong as soon as I said it. <laughs> Meanwhile, formula is still being subjected to international tariffs, so it's not clear how Biden's operation fly formula. What a, what a great name. I, I, I'm sure the ultra MAGA people were responsible for that one. <laughs> Putin's, Putin's, Putin's baby Putin's, formula. I don't Putin's know. Pu- uh, puppet <laughs> formula. Uh, Rand Paul has introduced a bill yesterday to permanently remove tariffs on baby formula, cut regulations set by the FDA. That sounds good to me. Yeah, I'm glad you approved. The efforts come as two babies in Memphis were hospitalized after needing IV fluids and nutritional support. Desperate parents have been advised not to make their own formula at home, leaving parents with few options other than to sit and wait. Facebook even censored a homemade baby formula recipe on its platform that made the wrap. Yeah, this was pretty uh, egregious. My colleague at Reason, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, pointed this out to me yesterday. Uh, yeah, this is just a, a mom who had a, a homemade formula, uh, a recipe for baby formula, and the Facebook fact checkers, which I've complained about on this, this show before, are the, the very worst content moderators of all. They blurred the image that this is like dangerous information because it's not been vetted by the FDA. Like what? So, so Facebook is just. It's just an enforcer for like what the government thinks you should be allowed to. People have made, and, and then if if you look closely at what this formula was recommending, it, 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 it's very it was, it was using um, uh, sub, I think corn syrup, which is a part of has been a part of baby formula recipe. Well, do we it's know? Not un, okay. It, 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 this specifically has not been vetted by the FDA, but it, it, it is it is composed of elements that have been approved by the FDA. All right. Robbie, like it's composed of elements, you know, the difference between like hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen gas, like <laughs> poisons well, are I'm... comprised of the same chemicals that are, com- are right. in things that are perfectly healthy for us. So I'm not, I'm not but trying Facebook to say wasn't say, to... saying this was poison. It was just saying the FDA has not vetted this to establish that yes. it is not poison. I, I hear that. And I don't, I don't disagree. I just want to, I want to point out that I would be curious to know if this formula actually is or is not harmful because I think it is true. I mean, we can we can say that we don't like this censorship without also dismissing the fact that there are real safety risks here from people sharing these formulas. So if you read that that post, it's like, you know, my grandmother, this is my, my family formula, my grandmommy gave this to me or whatever. And it seems very folksy and homey and it makes me want to trust it. But that could be an issue if it's not actually up to safety. And I wonder what you think of a measure instead of blurring it out like this and not allowing people to post it, if they were to start putting those little like warning banners under stuff the way they do for, you know, uh, Trump, you know, uh, election stealing misinformation and things like that, where they allow it to be posted, but they just they just say, warning, this might not be accurate information. Warning, you should check I guess with your doctor. They add, just add a little label that says, this, right, this recipe has not been approved by the FDA. Fine. They can let us know. I don't care that it's not been approved yeah. by the FDA. The FDA is not the ultimate arbiter of all truth on earth. Uh, <laughs> but if that 
Like, who, who are we, who is, who is this serving? Who is pre- Well, it is serving, but see, this, this is where we disagree. I, I, I'm true. totally with you on the structural dangers of having this much intervention from these private companies on what speech goes out into the world. At the same time, I can recognize that it's intended oftentimes to address real problems that exist in the world, like the fact that all these babies are being hospitalized across the country because people are diluting their formula, making up formulas that are not medically indicated and are unintentionally hurting their babies. And I still want to be working toward a solution to that fundamental problem, even if I disagree with the solution that's currently being trotted out by Facebook and the government, which might be, and we, this is a real problem that we're dealing with, with, with the, you know, mass media and the way that you can distribute facts far and wide in the way that wasn't possible before. Before, if I tell my neighbor, hey, this is a formula I use, the worst, the worst thing I can do is maybe like cause a couple hospitalizations on my cul-de-sac. Nowadays, if I, I can post something, dress it up so that it's a folksy sounding, legitimate sounding recipe that's been used for years. It may or may not be. But I found myself really taken by that post. And then I thought to myself, I had no way of knowing this is representing anything that's authentic and it can spread to millions of people and potentially cause damage. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how to address that. I am, I'm much more for a minimalist version of pushback with a labeling, if anything, as opposed to blurring it out. But I think we have to recognize the underlying concern. My, my, my colleague, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who is, uh, she's a new mother herself, and she's more of an expert in nutrition than I am. More than you? Kill, kilowatts? <laughs> kilowatts. <laughs> I knew it was wrong when I was saying it. She, uh, so she wrote about this and said you know, what was being recommended in this uh, homemade baby formula was not different in subst- any substantial way from what right people have been making for decades or was standard in the 1960s. And I think that it, the fact that the Facebook fact checkers cannot distinguish between like a post that says, right, here's this older recipe for baby formula that might be of some use to you given what's going on now and like an instruction to drink bleach is concerning, right? That is something you would want maybe them to, if you know, widespread um, some viral post to encouraging people to commit actual serious harm okay. or ingest. But how do we but know that this recipe... they can't tell the difference between that. Well, so this is the issue. How do you know that that recipe is not as harmful to a baby as drink bleach, or similarly harmful as drink bleach, if they are not basically vetting it with the same expertise as the FDA? Do we want the... Facebook to be doing the FDA's job of saying this is there is or is not a I'm not even sure I want the FDA right? doing the FDA's job. Well, I certainly okay. don't want Facebook doing it. <laughs> uh, I the Facebook fact checkers have not shown any ability to be um, to be reasonable or apply common sense in in case. And actually, I, I believe I'd have to check this. I, I missed this uh, this morning. I believe our article about this got also then got censored by Facebook, by the fact checkers on Instagram, which is the same mm. company, obviously. Mm. So us writing about this ended up with the same warning label situation. Mm. Blurred? Frustrating. Blurred? blurred. Or... The blurred. The, the blurred, but it's blurred with this like false information kind of banner, which I, I get was something I've been hit with in the past when they, they claimed I was making, um, they said I had made the claim that masks don't work in mm. this article I wrote, which the, the, and they quoted that. And my article never said that masks don't work. My article was just summarizing better reporting from The Atlantic that found mask mandates in schools 
uh, schools that had mask requirements didn't had not seemed to fare statistically better than schools that didn't have them, which is t- a totally different claim. Yeah. So then I, I come back to the fact that like, you are making the false claim right yeah. now because you're saying I said something I never said in this post. And they did fix it in that case. Yeah, but, you got you got yankowitched. Yeah, I got yankowitched. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we've got our radars coming up next. Speaking of, I've got a long one on Yankowich, and Brianna has one on the state of the Democratic Party, so stay tuned for that. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, the Department of Homeland Security has placed a pause on the newly minted disinformation governance board, as we reported yesterday. But now its first executive director, Nina Yankowich, has resigned. The board's existence, which was announced just three weeks ago, prompted serious concerns for many civil libertarians and inspired Ministry of Truth comparisons. We discussed those on the show at great length. Now, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas tried and largely failed to address these concerns by noting that the board would serve in merely an advisory capacity, not have any actual power to police speech, so he said. That the Disinformation Governance Board did a bad job of communicating information about itself did not exactly instill confidence, and evidently DHS has now realized that the entire project was a bad idea. It's unclear whether plans for the board will be unpaused in the future. Yankowicz had initially decided to resign, reconsidered when she was told the pause might be temporary, and then she ultimately left anyway. Now, this news came from an exclusive report by The Washington Post's Taylor Lorenz, whose scoop is buried underneath layers of pro-government verbiage. Lorenz's story excessively flatters Yankowicz. She is glamorized as, quote, well-known in the field, having extensive experience, well-regarded, and that's all in just the first two paragraphs. Now, the the article ignores legitimate criticism of the so-called experts' track record. Indeed, there is zero mention, none whatsoever, doesn't appear a single time in the article, of the fact that Yankowicz was flagrantly wrong about the pivotal disinformation episode of the 2020 election cycle, the Hunter Biden laptop story. For Washington Post, the story is not that DHS shuttered this governance board. The real story is that right-wing coordinated online attacks achieved this outcome after subjecting Yankowicz to an unrelenting barrage of harassment. Within, quote, within hours of news of her appointment, Yankowicz was thrust into the spotlight by the very forces she dedicated her career to combating, writes Lorenz. Now, she concedes that the board's name was ominous and details about its specific mission were scant, But most of the article focuses on the tenor of the criticism of Yankowicz. Quote, Yankowicz was on the receiving end of the harshest attacks with her role mischaracterized as she became a primary target on the right-wing internet, writes Lorenz. She has been subject to an unrelenting barrage of harassment and abuse while unchecked misrepresentations of her work continue to go viral. That's not even close to all of it. More, quoting quoting more, Yankwich's experience is a prime example of how the right-wing internet apparatus operates, where far-right influencers attempt to identify a target, present a narrative, and then repeat mischaracterizations across social media and websites with the aim of discrediting and attacking anyone who seeks to challenge them. And it goes on. These smears leveled by bad faith right-wing actors against a deeply qualified expert and against efforts to better combat human smuggling and domestic terrorism are disgusting. Deputy White House Press Secretary Andrew Bates told The Post. 
Even more, DHS staffers have also grown frustrated with the department's suspension of intradepartmental working groups focused on mis-, dis-, and mal-information. Some officials said it was an overreaction that gave too much credence to bad-faith actors. A 15-year veteran of the department who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to comment publicly called the DHS response to the controversy mind-boggling. I've never seen the department react like this before, he said. And I'm still not done. Here's another section of the article. Experts say that right-wing disinformation and smear campaigns regularly follow the same playbook, that it's crucial that the public and leaders of institutions, especially in the government, the media, and educational bodies, understand more fully how these cycles operate. Wow, that was a lot. And that's the explicit message of the article. It's hammered over, over, and over again that expressing any concern about Yankovic and the Disinformation Governance Board was an act of sabotage by bad-faith right-wing harassers against a noble public servant, a flawless individual. The Washington Post does not grapple with legitimate criticism of Yankovic. The article doesn't even acknowledge that any exist. Bad people oppose her in the Post framing, and if you oppose her, well, you're probably one of them. Yet there is good reason to be skeptical of both the Disinformation Governance Board and Yankovic's fitness to run it. Informal efforts to police disinformation on social media are beset with serious challenges, as moderators and fact-checkers routinely make odious mistakes. Just yesterday, Facebook dubiously censored a recipe for homemade baby formula. That's something we're talking about on the show today. Government disinformation cops, they're no better. Time and time again, public health officials circulated false information about COVID-19 and suppress perfectly legitimate discussions of the theory that the virus originated from a lab leak. When the New York Post reported on the salacious contents of Hunter Biden's laptop just weeks before the election, the story was widely dismissed by so-called disinformation experts and government security experts on grounds they presumed it to be Russian malfeasance. Quote, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. That was the Politico headline in October 2020. Now, Yankovic was one of those experts. She repeatedly made public statements indicating that she shared that view. She shared national security officials' high confidence that the Hunter Biden story was part of a Russian influence campaign. She described the idea that the laptop had been left behind at a repair shop as a fairy tale. This was a critical test of whether disinformation experts could keep their innate tendency to ascribe everything unfavorable to the Democratic Party as Russian nefariousness in check. And they utterly failed. You know what? Nina Jankowitz failed as well. So somewhere in Taylor Lorenz's article, amid the repetitive praising of Jankowitz's qualifications, anonymously sourced lamentations that DHS will no longer be able to recruit effectively, oh no, not that, and broad characterization of criticism as nothing more than sexist harassment, perhaps that failure deserved a mention. The article reads like it was ghostwritten by Jankowitz herself, which makes the underlying scoop less impressive. It's actually easy to get a government official to cooperate for a news article when the news article takes the form of PR. <laughs> yeah, I can't uh, disagree with this one at all. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, the problem is that even if there were a sliver of truth, you know, I'm sure that she did receive some harassment. Absolutely, no and question. It, certainly she received pushback from the left and the right. Across the p- spectrum, people had these substantive concerns. What's so problematic is that you don't get to the substantive concerns, so we don't even have any space, you and I, to give any credence to the fact that maybe she was treated poorly in some corners of the internet. And maybe a little bit by us. You know, like, <laughs> we did that's, make fun of the TikTok videos. You know, it's in, in good in good-naturedly, but that's that's fundamentally the problem. And I, I, I see this happen over and over and over again. People believe that if they admit 
anything wrong, anything wrong they've ever done or anything wrong when they're talking about a person that they otherwise like or support, that that will undermine their entire credibility effort. And it's the exact opposite. By acknowledging your opponent's point of view, by acknowledging the flaws in the person that you're trying to protect, you shore up your own credibility and you shore up theirs. And I don't understand why people don't, don't get that. I think it's probably the best lesson that I learned in law school is that you cannot ignore your opponent's arguments. It does you no benefit. Mm -hmm. All it does is make you look like you're either ignorant or you are misrepresenting the case, which is not a situation you want to be in when you're talking about a misrepresentation uh, governance board. <laughs> and, and the fact that she got harassed, that she got violent threats, absolutely horrible, worthy of condemnation, um, the way you know some aspects of the right wing uh, attempt to discredit her you know, took the form of this kind of harassment, very bad. Absolutely agreed. But just getting harassment does not, does not mean that you're without flaw or without sin because everyone gets harassed. If we measure right. the, if, if receiving harassment means that you should not be criticized, you're, 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 you're on the right side, how is that? Because we all get harassment. Right. Anyone in the public life in an, with an online presence who's participating in politics or commentary and is even remotely successful at attracting attention, positive or negative to themselves, goes through this at some point. It, it, uh, for women, it takes a, sometimes a specifically sexually violent, um, unpleasant. Sure. Absolutely, but men get de death threats and threats of violence as well. I've gotten them, you've probably gotten them. That's just that's just how it is. It's that's terrible. But it does not because you're getting them. It doesn't mean that's you're right. And this is a point that Glenn Greenwald has made, made a lot that he's frustrated about the weaponization of mm -hmm. harassment. And I think that he has a particular you know uh, cross to bear here because he has so, is someone who in Brazil with the reporting that he's done has received more than just kind of online harassment. It's really come into his personal life. There was he was a victim of a home invasion. All of these a things horrific have happened, home invasion. Yeah, have happened to him. And I think that casts for him some of the things that happen on the internet in a different light, understandably. Now, that doesn't mean just because something worse happens to you that you necessarily need to have absolutely no sympathy for anything, anybody else in the world. But I do think it gives him a perspective that I share, is that we have to be careful about how we weaponize the bad things that happen to us to absolve us of responsibilities for other things that we've done. And you saw this, this kind of really, um, uh, you know, context-dependent, caring about harassment of women or harassment of minorities. And you see the Democratic Party doing this a lot, and that has destroyed its credibility, where it says, oh, I care so much about women of color. I care so much about these people, unless they disagree with them substantively on their politics, unless they're to their left, at which point it's, let's support the establishment white guy, anti-choice guy in Texas over you know Jessica Cisneros, who's everything that the party said that they wanted. And that's why people are increasingly, I think, just not caring about anybody's claims of harassment. And, and that's not a place that I think we want to be in either. Well said, well yeah. said. And I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, today I'm asking who represents the biggest threat to establishment politics in America? Well, follow the money and you'll find out. According to an article published this week by 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, a corporatist coup has been launched by a wide array of allied groups, including crypto speculators, the oil industry, pharmaceuticals, finance, and even Republicans. And who are they targeting? Populist progressive candidates fighting for higher wages, 
universal health care, climate reform, and criminal justice reform. I've noted on this program and elsewhere that a key difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is that Republicans respect their base, Democrats loathe theirs. And now there's evidence that Democrats leverage more resources and are more effective at killing the only energy that exists on the left than they are at defeating Republican opponents. We saw how this went down in Ohio's 11th district, where super PACs like APAC and DMFI, the Democratic Majority for Israel, raised millions of dollars for attack ads against Nina Turner, ultimately damning both her runs. These groups not only launched ads that lied about her political record, they attempted to silence her by inaccurately smearing her as anti-Semitic. But the corporate interests didn't stop there. You might have heard that while Democrats rushed to make money off the leaked Dobbs opinion and exploit legitimate fears that the end of Roe v. Wade was afoot, Democratic leaders like Jim Clyburn were literally campaigning for anti-choice candidate Henry Cuellar in his district, despite the fact that he's neck and neck in a runoff with a pro-choice progressive populist, Jessica Cisneros. She's right there, ready for support by the party who says they believe in choice and also likes to pretend they like to support women of color. Crypto speculator Sam Bankman-Fried spent some $10 million to promote an unknown name over a number of progressive candidates, making the race for Oregon's 6th congressional district the most expensive in the country. But even worse, that spin was amplified by the House Democratic Caucus PAC, who threw an additional $1 million into the race as well. Corporate interests also tried to take down Pennsylvania progressive Summer Lee. As Akela Lacey reported in The Intercept, quote, the United Democracy Project, the political action committee for APAC, poured more than $1 million into ads in Pennsylvania's 12th district. The PAC spent more than $2.3 million on the race, most of which went to messaging attacking Lee. But this time, it didn't work. Summer Lee won an astounding victory Tuesday night despite the millions of corporate dollars funding her opponent and smears that she was anti-Semitic too. The basis of those smears, by the way, she was pointing out how the phrase Israel has a right to defend itself had been used to justify atrocities against Palestinians. Defending yourself is fine, but defending yourself isn't the issue when you're attacking worshippers at Alaska Mosque, which is what Lee was responding to at the time of her tweets. But APAC's preoccupation isn't rhetorical precision. Its preoccupation is crushing populist progressive candidates that are actually unbought and are therefore able to fight for the agenda majorities of Americans across the aisle want. A living wage, universal health care, environmental reform, and spending money here at home rather than on foreign interventionism. Bernie Sanders, one of the few Congress members to consistently endorse embattled progressive candidates, sounded the alarm earlier this month. Billionaires are now spending huge amounts in Democratic primaries in Pennsylvania, Texas, Oregon, and North Carolina to defeat progressives and elect corporate Democrats, he tweeted. In a two-party system, oligarchs want to own both parties. That's why Tuesday's progressive victories are such a big deal. It was a David and Goliath story. And at least when it came to Lee Fetterman, Charles Booker, and some others, David finally won. But here's what's really so bizarre. Even though these progressives won, in part because they were so known and respected in their communities that the smears just didn't stick, corporate media is already spinning these victories as a problem. Chris Wallace, formerly of Fox, now on CNN, hand-wrung about Fetterman's win, saying he's a risk for Democrats in a general election because he wants universal background checks and to legalize pot. 
two policies that are enormously popular. I, I will say I, I have to disagree slightly with the with the previous panel because while his authenticity and down to earthness, if there's such a, a phrase, played very well in the in the Democratic primary, you get to a general election, particularly if you end up with a moderate like. Dave McCormick, there are a lot of things that the Republicans are going to have to work with in going after John Fetterman. This is a guy who is against limits on abortion. He's for universal background checks. He wants to end the filibuster. He wants to legalize pot. <laughs> Not to mention 88 percent of Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania voters support background checks and a majority support the right to choose. This is what corporate media always does misrepresent what the people want, gaslighting us into thinking that what we really need is a do-nothing corporatist who maintains the status quo too many Americans are suffering under already. And what's really, really wild about all of this is that corporate Democrats and their media stooges regularly bash progressives as, quote, not real Democrats, all while their chosen candidates openly sabotage the Democratic Party agenda. In Oregon's 5th District, the Democratic Party's choice was Kurt Schrader, a man labeled the Joe Manchin of the House because of his ability to derail Biden's agenda. He played a key role in killing the drug pricing legislation built into the Build Back Better bill. Popular legislation that bipartisan majorities of Americans want because, you know, we can't afford health care. Thankfully, he's losing to progressive Jamie McLeod Skinner, but not before he got millions of dollars in outside big pharma spending and a pro-Israel super PAC called Mainstream Democrats PAC. What a name. And not before he got a key endorsement from Joe Biden, the man whose agenda he killed. Make it make sense. In Biden's endorsement announcement, he said, we don't always agree, but what it has mattered most, Kurt has been there for me, and in doing so, has helped pass much of my agenda into law. Whew. If this is what your friends look like, who needs enemies? Now, if you're wondering why progressives are doing so well, despite corporate Democrats and Republicans insisting like mean girls that nobody likes you, look to a new NBC News poll cited in a recent piece from The Lever. Nearly two thirds of Democratic voters want a candidate who proposes larger scale policies that cost more and might be harder to pass into law, but could bring major change on the issues of healthcare, climate change, the cost of college and economic opportunity people are over incrementalism. We are living in the world incrementalism has wrought. It's time for a change and this rising populist movement is ready to deliver. The question is whether populist progressives can overcome the corporatists funding the Democratic Party and plutocratic super PACs to deliver for the people. So I was triggered into writing this, Robbie, when I saw that Joe Biden was endorsing the guy who derailed his own campaign, the core part of his agenda, at the same time that progressives in my camp are constantly told that we're not real Democrats, as we run against Nina Turner that expressly said she's not a real Democrat, never being really specific about what that means, by the way, but just the vibes were, you're not on our team, you can't sit at our table, real mean girl stuff. And the very people who are a too brutaing you, stabbing you in the back, are not only off the hook, they're actively getting your endorsement and millions and millions of dollars in corporate co campaign um, donations. And nobody talks about that as being in conflict with the values of the Democratic Party.
No, you're right. I, I've talked about this a lot uh, with Ryan uh, when he hosts. Uh, so I, I try never to make the mistake of thinking things that I think are right or are good policy are necessarily popular. Mm. Some of the things I think are good policy are popular. Many of them are not. And I think a lot of uh, political actors fall into that category. And it's easy to see with the, you know, the fights between the so-called moderate or liberal Democratic wings and the progressive wings. Um, whereas like moderate, like even I can concede that moderate doesn't necessarily mean more popular. Mm -hmm. Many of the things progressives support, the policies are popular, uh, depending on how they're framed. Now, some progressives, I think, get it like socialism is not popular. It's calling it socialism is not popular. The underlying policies might be popular. Sure. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, Chris Wallace, not a not his best commentary. <laughs> Pot legalization, incredibly popular. <laughs> I mean, what, what better way to actually get people excited? Like even even many Republicans support that policy now. So that yes. was that was some tone deaf commentary. Yeah, and and you would not. I'm not surprised by that, given the tone of what the conversation that happened on these mainstream news channels and also the guests they have on. I think it would be genuinely jarring for him if there was someone at the table who just said, what are you talking about? Of course, pot's popular. Yeah. And just, you know, and <laughs> look at as a as a single as a single issue voter, uh, <laughs> I am a single issue voter. I, I will only I will vote for the candidate who is most against covid restrictions. Uh, between Lamb and uh, Fetterman, uh, I, they were bringing back, I think, a mask requirement in yeah. some city. And Lamb said, like, oh, well, that's, you know, they get to decide that. And Fetterman said that seemed stupid to him. So that instantly my 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 vote was won. So. Well, maybe someday in the not so distant future, we will be casting the ballot in a presidential race for the same person, Robbie. <laughs> How about John that? Fetterman. Easiest way to win my vote. Uh, all right. We'll have our rising panel with us. Stay tuned for that. A bill for more spending for Ukraine is set to reach President Biden's desk today. Now, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul said that spending money on Ukraine is a threat to U.S. national security. In a new article he wrote uh, for The Federalist, Paul referenced the Ukraine Supplement Appropriations Act of 2022, which would provide supplemental appropriations and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine for the 2022 fiscal year. If the Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2022 is adopted as currently drafted, our total aid to Ukraine will almost equal Russia's annual military spending. Paul recently blocked the House bill that would give $40 billion of aid to Ukraine. New York Senator Chuck Schumer went after Rand Paul for slowing down the $40 billion Ukraine bill. He said it's repugnant that one member from the other side, the junior senator from Kentucky, chose to make a show and obstruct Ukraine funding, knowing full well he couldn't actually stop its passage. Democratic strategist Nicole Brenner-Schmitz and culture editor at The Federalist Emily Jasinski join us now to discuss. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Emily, I don't know if you had a hand in getting uh, uh, Rand Paul to uh, write this article, but, uh, you know, what are your what are your thoughts on the subject of kind of seemingly endless uh, amounts of money to Ukraine? You know, despite how obviously sympathetic we all are to their situation, uh, doesn't there there come a point where and this aid is right, it's aid, but it's, it's weapons. It's a lot of weapons. Right. So I actually asked Senator Rubio the same question on Federalist Radio Hour a couple of weeks ago because it was when they were debating this. And I said, is there a certain point? He was talking about China. He was in, in the context of China. He was saying um, this is, is it, it. China actually sees that our attention is going to Ukraine. And I said, in that context, is there then a line? Um, and I think Senator Rubio is sympathetic to that. And obviously, Senator Paul is. But the question then becomes, 
at what point is too is it too many billions? And I don't think anybody, specifically in the Biden administration, has a good answer to that question at all yet. I think actually when Chuck Schumer says it's repugnant that Rand Paul would uh, look for and uh, he, he wants basically another oversight mechanism, um, especially after what happened in Afghanistan. And you know you look at the IG reports out of Afghanistan and see how much money was was wasted and basically just thrown into a dumpster and lit on fire. Um, So when Chuck Schumer says it's repugnant for Rand Paul not to just rubber stamp his $40 billion legislation, Amazon just bought MGM for like $4 billion. They're talking about $40 billion of this bill alone. It's actually repugnant that you would expect the entire Congress to rubber stamp your $40 billion legislation without anybody trying to throw a wrench into the process and at least say, we should be funding them. But there should be oversight and there should be a responsible spending mechanism um, in this legislation. So that is, I think, completely backwards, but very telling. Nicole, why is it that Democrats haven't seemed to be able to read the room on this one? We have so many domestic crises unfolding. You know, people have drawn really stark contrasts between, you know, American mothers and American parents not being able to find food for their babies and all of this money being sent overseas. The juxtaposition between Russia's entire military budget and how much we're sending to Ukraine is stark and galling. We already, of course, spend more on the military than the next 10 countries combined for our own uh, military efforts. Why is it that there doesn't seem to be any pullback or acknowledgement that there's so much frustration from the public in a bipartisan way about how easily the money seems to go out the door for Ukraine versus how difficult it is for our Congress to vote on any money to help Americans here at home? Well, I think the Democrats are trying to show you that this is helping people at home. They're trying to make the connection that's stopping uh, author, uh, you know, dictatorships and and these kind of regimes is important, that protecting democracy abroad is important, and that this kind of investment, it is weapons. These things have to be made. This is putting money into an economy in that structure. But I don't think that they're making the, the clearest argument to the American people about why this funding and why supporting Ukraine and its efforts is directly involved with keeping America at its stature in the world and the and the position that we hold and keeping our economy and our workforce strong is directly correlated to this broader global economy, which means that having free countries and having democracy abroad, and we're doing it in conjunction with our partners in Europe, is is important. Yeah, I think that you're right that the case isn't being well made, that this democracy building project, some people might call it uh, American imperialism, is protecting us at home. I don't know if you want to try to make that case for us here, because what people are seeing is that they have immediate material concerns. And on the other hand, we have a conflict that's been going on since with U.S. direct U.S. involvement since 2014. But Obama declined to escalate into a full-blown war at that point, and now we're seeing what uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan that's now being paired with a resurgence of a military effort that just so happens to result in a great deal of uh, lucrative contracts for defense industry. You see Joe Biden going down to defense uh, to weapons manufacturers and giving speeches there and really prioritizing this. We see Raytheon. Um, former staffers in uh, the Defense Department and Joe Biden's cabinet. And to a lot of Americans, it looks like this is a boon for the war machine. And it's really unclear how this uh, inerts the benefit of Americans at all. 
Well, certainly the, the point that Rand Paul, I think, leaned into in, in his article was he was trying to link these to the inflation problem. And I, I understand why Republicans want to do that, because inflation is a huge concern for the, Demo- uh, for the American public. But the reality is, is that this spending bill funding and sending aid to Ukraine is not what's going to increase inflation in, in this country. These two things are not directly linked in the way that, that Rand Paul alludes to in, in, his, in his article. What the Biden administration is doing is ensuring that democracy is being protected across the world, which in their predictions is something that is going to help the American economy. And that this is a way, the same way that we've funded different, uh, if you send a, a surplus check, if you send those checks out to people, right, that's something that people think is spent right back into the economy. This is the more traditional way of, of creating a, a strong economy, which is funding things that then have to be manufactured and made and create these jobs and these wages. And that's the case that the the Democrats need to be stronger and better about making. Well, the list of anti-Ukraine Republican lawmakers is growing. Two months ago, three, just three, voted against the first pro-Ukraine bill. Last week, 57 opposed the request for weapons and humanitarian aid. The 11 senators that voted no on the $40 billion for Ukraine include Rand Paul, Cynthia Lummis, Mike Lee, Marsha Blackburn, Tommy Tuberville, Josh Hawley, Bill Haggerty, Roger Marshall, John Bozeman, Mike Crapo, and Mike Braun. Emily, is this, this is, um, this might be the, the, like the, fi- the ultimate pivotal turning point for the Republican Party's evolution into the anti-war party. I, I don't know how anyone could make the, the other case. The Republican Party is the anti-war party. The Democratic Party, with with rare exception, I mean, I, I, the uh, the squad, the so-called most likely to be progressive, uh, non-interventionist people uh, have have gone along with this thus far. It's It's elements of the Republican Party are the only ones really denouncing this. That's an interesting point. And I think what's still uh, stark to me is how bright the contrast is between uh, some of the folks on on that list that you just read um, and the people in the Republican Party who are very supportive of, you know, rubber stamping the $40 billion to Ukraine. And I think your point, Robbie, is a good one, that who else, except for this list of Republican senators um, who, you know, have political incentives at play, of course, of course, uh, but who else is actually actually being the person who stands in front of the the rubber stamp and you know like the person who changed themselves to the tree like there's nobody else doing that the only people who are doing it are republicans and again there are political incentives at play absolutely but there's also a lot of nuance i mean if you look at somebody like marsha blackburn um if you look at actually a lot of the names on those lists the nuance there is not that we shouldn't be helping ukraine and even with rand paul and his op-ed for the federalists it's, he's not saying let let's not help Ukraine. He's not saying this is not any of our business. That's not the argument. The argument is that when you're you're sending for this is just this legislation alone, $40 billion, and you can't articulate an endpoint, um, and you don't have sufficient oversight, those things mean that you sh- probably shouldn't just be signing off on $40 billion, um, and that's where you get these, these votes against it. And so it, it is sort of a, a nuanced set of disagreements, um, but the disagreements are real, and I actually think those Republican senators uh, made the right vote.
Hmm. That's an interesting point, Emily. Well, former U.S. Representative Tulsi Gabbard said that politicians are rushing to pass this bill because they don't want us to know how much it will cost us, our economy, families, and national security, or danger of nuclear war, and that it was completely irresponsible. Let's take a look. It, it tells you that they don't really want the American people to know what is in this bill and what will come next and what it will truly cost us, not just a few of us, but all of us as the American people today and what appears to be, if we continue down this path, for the long term to come. That should be a huge red flag for the American people as they look at leaders in Washington resorting to name calling and smearing rather yes. than actually providing these clear explanations to the American people. Nicole, is that right? Is that, you know, the bare minimum that they should be able to somewhat itemize where this money is going? I mean, certainly the bill is explicit in what it is doing. This is available. And I find it a really interesting attack on Democrats to say that they're not providing any oversight. I think Democrats would welcome not being the party of, of red tape for once. I mean, Democrats always want oversight on everything. That's what what the party's almost built on at this point. Um, no one's trying to keep it a secret as to what's happening here. The Biden administration is being completely forthright with what this money is to do. And I, quite frankly, don't know what uh, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard's talking about. Hmm. So what is the relationship then? I mean, if, if it's all accounted for and proportional, how do we justify spending as much or sending as much money as Russia spends in its entire military budget when there's the, the goal here is ostensibly, you know, defending against a Russian invasion? Emily? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a question of a lot of things in Washington have oversight, um, sort of technically they have oversight. And that's where you get the spending in Afghanistan that a lot of it we didn't know about until IG reports came out, detailed IG reports. And so I think Senator Paul is saying there's we, we don't want to have to wait for the IG reports. And we don't a lot of st stuff in Washington happens out in the open. It just goes completely under the radar because the media is disinterested and under has different priorities. Uh, and, and I think after especially after those IG reports out of Afghanistan and a lot of the, the retrospectives of Afghanistan, it's a pretty clear lesson that a lot of these bills, even if they are out in the open and we can sort of uh, see where the spending is going. Um, if, if there aren't additional mechanisms, we end up years later having this bipartisan moment where we, we look back and we all sort of nod our heads and say, yeah, that we should have done something better. Um, so I, I do think there's a serious argument to be made there. Um, and I, I still think it's it's been tough without the articulation of this is where we, this is, the money is directly going to this purpose. And this is where we, I understand that's difficult, but like this is is where we we draw the line. Um, I just don't think anybody. I mean, the administration has struggled to answer what the end point or what the end goal is. Um, is it your know, regime change? What is it? Um, and unless you have a pretty clear understanding of what that is, I mean, of course, the American people are going to be very anxious about printing tons of money um, and and having it rubber stamped by just about everybody in Congress and sending it off to Ukraine. It's a reminder that o the word oversight is a contronym, a word with two opposite meanings, one of them being to scrutinize closely and one of them being to overlook and disregard entirely. Uh, Nicole, Get Emily. out of here, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that there is, there, there is a fundamental, I think, at, at the core of all this, a disagreement about, and, and I think the way Rand Paul writes it right here, it's prioritizing the interests of other nations over our own will not end well. And that's not how the Biden administration sees or is approaching it. They don't see it as prioritizing another country over the United States. They see this as being something that 
does work and helps America and is building an America that has a standing and a stature and an influence in this world and an economy. And so I think at the fundamental very base of this is a different understanding of what providing aid we can talk about the number and the oversight, but what just providing a, a substantial amount of aid really means for the U.S. Well, Emily Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. A U.S. government watchdog report released this week reveals exactly how the Afghan military lost power after America's botched exit from the war-torn country. Now, the Washington Post previously reported the Taliban brokered surrender deals, but there's more to the story than that, according to new reporting from the Washington Post. So then-President Ashraf Ghani who uh, purportedly fled in a helicopter full of cash, he feared, it seems, that he would be overthrown by the U.S. and by his own military, the report reveals. Ghani's dismissal of senior security officials and key commanders on the ground reportedly confused the war effort and culminated in the country's fall, according to the report. Research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Adam Weinstein, joins us to discuss the findings further. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for having me. So what are we to make of this? Uh, there's obviously some validity to this, uh, this reporting uh, that he, he now was he, he was concerned that this was going to happen. But is there reason for him to think that was a realistic concern? In terms of in terms of in the terms of, the, of being overthrown. Uh, well, you know, I think Washington suffered and, and Kabul as well suffered from an inability to speak frankly about just how bad things were on the ground. And so we were just incapable of grappling with this reality. So uh, we engaged in a kind of uh, unhinged, unhinged optimism is what I would call it. But it also, uh, you know, remind viewers that if you read through the entire SIGAR report, uh, they don't say that if we just stayed two more years or three more years, everything would be okay. It was going to be measured in decades and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, if you really read through that report. For example, the Afghan Air Force uh, wasn't projected to be capable of maintaining their own aircraft until 2030. That's just one metric. Uh, and historically, those metrics have often been pushed back. See, Adam, this is this is what's so confusing, I think, for so many people, that there was this gulf, right, between how the public perceived the withdrawal. They were eagerly anticipating, were happy that Biden actually followed through on this, if only this, of his campaign promises, and how the media covered it, which was that it was a mess, which is not necessarily untrue, but it seemed to be part of a project of saying, beating the drums of war and wanting us to stay in Afghanistan. How should we perceive this reporting from the Washington Post as part of that ongoing narrative? Well, look, if you read the first line of the SIGAR report, it, it basically says that the U.S.-Taliban agreement and the withdrawal is was the major factor in the ANDSF collapsing. And that's technically true the same way if you removed life support from a terminally ill patient, removing the life support is what killed them. Hmm. But uh, if you read deeper into the report and you go through the rest of the interim report, it does talk about the terminal illness of this institution, the ANDSF, which was fraught with corruption, uh, which was, the United States was trying to make in its own image instead of creating a more sustainable model for, for Afghanistan. Um, and so 
what essentially happened uh, is that I think it, Washington became uh, s sort of hooked on its own narrative. Whereas if you went and talked to the American people, uh, I think the average American realizes that it's it just is, is basic common sense that if you can't uh, build a sustainable government abroad in 20 years, then uh, you might not be able to do it in 40 years either. Does, does the report recommend that there should have been a, a differently organized withdrawal that, that you know, different steps um, uh, should have been taken, like, like trying to get our, you know, our people out further in advance, which I understand is something uh, Ashraf Ghani didn't want because he didn't want to uh, make it seem like his government was about to collapse, even though it was. But you know, things of that nature, were they recommended in the report? Uh, the, the report didn't really go into the counterfactuals of what could have been in terms of a different type of withdrawal. Although, as a veteran of Afghanistan uh, myself, I'd say it's unacceptable that we didn't get the special immigrant visa applicants out, the former interpreters out ahead of time. But that goes back to the crux of the problem, which was an inability in Washington or Kabul to grapple with the reality of the ground situation. Uh, planning far enough ahead to get the interpreters out would have required an honest conversation in Washington about just how much of a military advantage the Taliban has and just what a paper tiger the Afghan government and the ANDSF were. But we weren't ready to have that conversation. And the cost is that tens of thousands of our partners uh, uh, are, are now trapped and many of them are, are being uh, executed. So that's I the cost of that. Yeah. Adam, when you say we weren't ready to have that conversation, what does that mean? Uh, what I mean is that uh, in the in the lead up to uh, uh, the withdrawal, when the when the policy debate was happening, there were really two positions. There was a disingenuous position that said, "Oh, we can stay just a couple more years and everything will be okay," and there was the position that, "Oh, well, if if we leave and withdraw, everything will, will be okay." And I think what the conversation we needed to be having at the time was, "Look, we have two choices. We can stay indefinitely for decades." and spend hundreds of billions of dollars, or we can withdraw, and we have to recognize there's an incredibly high probability that the Taliban could take over the country, and so we need to take steps to protect those who supported us. Um, but that became a taboo to say in Washington. But why is that? And, and among because who was it a taboo? Yeah. I think it was a taboo in Congress. I think it was a taboo among think tankers and, and analysts. Uh, I think it was a taboo in the Pentagon across the board. It was a taboo because it was an admission of failure. Mm -hmm. and. You saw not until we saw the kind of imagery we saw at uh, uh, the airport in Kabul did, did it really, uh, you know, occur to people just how bad things were. Yeah. And I, to give Joe Biden a little bit of credit, which is not something we do on the show an awful lot, I, I thought when he, you know, when he came out and said we are doing this withdrawal, it, it was not, I, I don't think he painted it like an overly rosy picture that everything was going to be fine when we're getting out of here. Uh, I don't recall him doing that. It was now he didn't. I don't think he either said that the country is going to fall immediately. The Taliban will take over. But he, he did say that, you know, that, look, we could do this forever and it's up to them now and we're getting out. Uh, so Biden had a in that moment had a much more honest reckoning with the American people and, you know, one reflecting actual sentiment among American people that we should not keep doing this forever, right? 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think his message resonated with Americans. And, and, and so did President Trump's decision to, to negotiate and withdraw to begin with. What resonates with Americans and the rest of the country doesn't always resonate inside the beltway with policymakers. Um, you know, my main criticism of President Trump would be I think the U.S.-Taliban agreement could have been negotiated a little better. And my main criticism of President Biden is that we should have gotten the interpreters out earlier. But at the end, I agree uh, fundamentally with both their conclusions, which was that we it was not in the U.S. interest to continue this war indefinitely. I mean, when you hear about some of the alternatives that people suggest, that we should have just remained occupying Afghanistan, uh, propping up its government for decades to come. I mean, it, are we a colonial power? I don't I don't yeah. think so. I don't think that resonates with with uh, the American people. And so I think Americans saw a certain common sense in the idea that uh, if, if a government couldn't sustain itself after 20 years of investment, that, that we should leave, even if it did lead to horrible things. And I think it's possible to be to empathize with Afghans who have lost an incredible amount, but also recognize that it was the right decision to leave. Uh, ultimately, I think the people who are responsible for a lot of the chaos uh, we've seen over the last 20 years uh, were the decision makers in the Pentagon and, and, the la and, the, and the last several administrations that handled this war uh, and the people who made promises to the Afghan people that they had no business making because there was no way we could possibly keep them. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Kim, tell us what is on your radar today. Well, it seems to still be extremely difficult for us to get any real reporting on the war in Ukraine. The only thing we keep hearing in our news is Russia is being pummeled and any day now they're going to run out of supplies, give up and go home. If you remember, there have been numerous reports coming out like this one from Newsweek on March 15th claiming Russia was mere days away from running out of resources. Or like this report from the Daily Mail two weeks later saying essentially the same thing, that Russia's war effort had stalled because the Red Army couldn't get supplies. Well, we've been unable to get a clear picture of what exactly is going on in Ukraine. All of the reporting has been, quite frankly, piss poor. An important figure, like how many casualties have occurred on either side, is still nearly completely unknown to us. For example, estimates of Ukrainian civilians killed runs somewhere between 3,800 and 25,000. That's an enormous difference. Same when it comes to estimates of troops killed. The Ukrainian government claims their military losses are somewhere around 3,000. The U.S. puts that estimate somewhere closer to 11,000. The estimates aren't any better when looking at Russian casualties. Russia claims they've lost about 1,500 troops, but the U.S. claims that figure is in the tens of thousands, even upwards to 60,000 troops lost by some estimates. Basically, it feels like pick a number, any number, somewhere between 1,000 and 100,000, and it might be right. Now, I understand things change in war moment to mo moment, and people are being unfortunately killed all the time, but this range in casualty numbers, especially troop casualties, is absurd. These soldiers are all accounted for. The military knows who's in each battalion. They know their names. They've given them numbers. And they know who doesn't make it at the end of each day. They know if it's 100 soldiers who don't make it or if it's 1,000 soldiers who don't make it. So why the wild estimates? Now, when it comes to how much territory has been successfully defended by Ukraine or lost to Russia, we're still very much in the dark as well. We get the runaround in reports, and at times they even flat out insult our intelligence. Just these past few days, Mariupol fell to Russian control. 
The city had been mostly under Russian control, minus a steel plant that was still under the control of the Azov Battalion. The battalion had been in pretty bad shape, uh, but they were under orders not to surrender until the other day when they finally were allowed to. Now, rather than report the reality that Russia has captured Mariupol and hundreds of Azov battalion fighters have surrendered, the media gave us headlines like these. Breaking news, Ukraine ended its combat mission in Mariupol and said fighters were being evacuated, signaling that the battle at a steel plant was over. Or like this headline here, Ukraine says Mariupol's steel plant combat mission completed as hundreds of troops evacuated evacuated. These headlines make it sound like Ukraine had come in, gotten their men out when the exact opposite happened. The fighters surrendered. The Russians rounded up the fighters and transported them to Russian-controlled territory, where they're now being held as POWs. And Mariupol is under full Russian control, likely never to be considered part of Ukraine again. Now, why can't we just be told the truth? I think that's the ultimate big question. With all of the fighting against misinformation, why are we being fed a diet full of it when it comes to the war in Ukraine? What are they afraid of if we know all the details, the wins, the losses, the triumphs, the tragedies? What is the problem with us knowing all the details? So I want to show you this clip of Mick Wallace addressing the European Parliament, which he is a member of. Now, Mick is an Irish politician who's part of the left-wing political coalition. And unlike many on the left here in the U.S., In Europe, the left-wing politicians actually call for an end to the war through peace talks and often call out the establishment lies we the people are being fed. Here he is talking about U.S. journalist Seth Harp, who has reported that it's impossible to get factual information out of Ukraine. Thanks very much, President. Um, Russia engages in disinformation and propaganda. So does everybody else. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the comments of the U.S. investigative reporter, Seth Harp, who recently got back from spending a month in Ukraine for Harper's Magazine in the U.S. He was conducting research and has been doing some interviews, and his experience is striking, if only for the limitation and obstacles he faced in trying to cover the war. Speaking about access for journalists in Ukraine, he said, no one is able to visit the front lines. No one is doing interviews with commanders. No one is going to the field hospitals. There aren't good casualty numbers. And it slowly dawned on me, he said, that it's just a result of the extraordinary restrictive immediate environment that's over there. It's much more restrictive than in any war zone I've ever worked in, he said. He described the media centres that had been set up by the Ministry of Defence over there, how streamlined and comfortable, he said, they were for Western reporters. But he says it's almost impossible to get information that doesn't come through the centralised channel. So there's a great deal of homogeneity in the reports that are coming out of Ukraine, largely because reporters are just going and hanging out at these centres and they're all getting the same material. Now, what's clear is that the narrative about the Ukraine war is tightly controlled by the Ukraine Ministry of Defence, and with all the checkpoints, it's impossible for journalists to gain access to anything resembling the front unless with full approval of the Ministry. Anything that deviates from the narrative that comes out of this highly choreographed show is condemned as Russian disinformation. When, in fact, what What I am describing is a smoothly running propaganda machine policing the narrative so as to suit the NATO-Ukraine perspective. The one-dimensional approach is at the expense of possibly reaching a genuine understanding of what's really going on. Yeah, so we don't really know what is going on. And Robbie and Bree, you know, the big question that I have is why 
are they not allowing us to know the truth? Why is it that journalists in Ukraine are unable to get to the front lines or to or to talk to commanders? We have one guy that's on YouTube, Patrick Lancaster and the people that he's with. He's on, he's been on the front lines in Mariupol watching his videos as har are harrowing. Um, but other than him, who's actually there and you can see him interviewing people in Mariupol. Now, that was a very he was he was uh, alongside Russians, Russian fighters uh, interviewing people in Mariupol. They gave a very anti-Ukraine perspective on that. But it was at least I mean, it, but he was talking to people. I mean, he was walking up to him. You could actually hear the interviews and hear their responses. That was better than what we're getting out of mainstream media. So I think, you know, one big question a lot of us have is, why can we not get accurate information coming out of that war? What is it that they don't want us to know and why do you think that is? Yeah, I thought it was very telling, and you were right to point it out, how the, the New York Times and other news outlets described what was happening in the resolution to Mariupol, which was a, a defeat for, the, for those Ukrainian-aligned forces. And, and they, but they said in the headline, right, Ukraine says they've withdrawn the force. Okay, right. sure, that's a factual. Ukraine did say that, but is what they said true? Just because they said it doesn't mean it's written. Like, not to tie this back to anything else, but I noticed that when I was, you know, criticizing this disinformation board guy, and, like, the mainstream reporting is, well, DHS said this was bad faith. Yeah, okay, the right, the government, stuff, right, the know? government said that, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's right. true. And that, that's a universal case for our government, for the Russian government, the Ukrainian government. But there's a kind of, I think, because the, the mainstream media says, well, right now, because of the composition of our government, uh, the mainstream media views the Biden administration favorably as like a home team kind of scenario that now extends to the Ukrainian government, given just the, the reality of our bifurcated politics. So if it's them, then it's, well, yeah, this is what they said. So we're not going to question that because it's what our people said, which is very unhealthy. Yeah, it was literally what ex-intelligence agencies say that Hunter Biden tape is likely Russian disinformation. I mean, it's the same. It's the same yeah. kind of headline we see over and over again. And I and I think can part to your initial question. Part of the issue is that we do have this crisis in media, where there are fewer and fewer outlets that have the resources to send people into these kinds of situations. Uh, you know, per your you know excellent segment, so many folks who are in those situations know each other from these legacy media institutions. They corral in the same place. They're talking to the same people. They're getting the same story because there's no real incentive to be the breakout when there's only there's basically a monopoly on the news and everyone's going to come to your two or three or four big sources anyhow. The idea of this intrepid reporter who was out there putting themselves on the line or trying to get a different kind of take, there's diminishing returns for that kind of investigative reporting. And it all comes from this fundamental funding crisis where there's no news anymore outside of the corporate news in large part. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Lancaster has been completely smeared as, you know, a Russian agent. I mean, he is with the Russian fighters um, documenting it and documenting the battle in Mariupol. But, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. The, the, it's diminishing returns for him when he's just labeled. And then it's it, will he even be welcome back in the United States when this is over? I don't know. I don't know. But I think he lives over there. So I don't know if he even plans on coming back at all. But I'm sure he would like to come home to visit family or something along those lines. But, you know, other things that Seth Harp, so he's really interesting, and at some point maybe we should get him on the show, but he um, talked about how even the idea of this big foreign legion, so when he was over there, he was investigating whether or not there's this 20,000-strong 
foreign legion. You know, we've been hearing about this in the news that all these foreign fighters coming and helping Ukraine. And he says it doesn't exist. It's totally made up. I mean, it's just 100 percent made up. And he says even The New York Times, when they tried to do a piece on this foreign legion, they said, uh, you know, one thing to note in the reporting when they were talking about it, one thing to note, we didn't actually identify or find any of these people. Well, what about, so what they about least... Malcolm Nance? No, but Malcolm well, Nance okay. is there. And... <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? I mean, he has the strength of 10. My God. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're right. Malcolm Nance, by, yeah. by all means. But, yeah. you know, it's just it's insane that we're not getting this actual information the, the, the reality and they're saying, you know, Russia's being pummeled. Russia has been has been gaining more and more ground. They nearly have completed what they said that they were going to do, which was capture Donbass and the whole of Donbass and also create a land bridge to Crimea. They're nearly done. They have uh, there's one area of the Donbass in the Donetsk region that they still haven't captured yet. And from the reports is that they're gearing up that they're rallying their troops, getting them ready for a big battle to capture the rest of, Dine- uh, of that Donetsk region in the Donbass. Once they do that, they have literally accomplished what they claimed that they were going to do in Ukraine. Now, whether they go beyond that and if they want to go and try to capture, let's say, Odessa or if they want to get more Ukrainian land, that is yet to be seen. But as far as what they said their goal is for this special operation, they're nearly completed. But we're not even getting that information. Instead, we just keep hearing over and over since the middle of March. How many? How long has it been now? Since three days till Russia runs out of supplies. You know, it's like two weeks to stop the spread. Three days and Russia's over. Three days and they're going to pack it up and go home. That hasn't actually happened. Are they lying to us because they want us to continue supporting the billions of dollars that are being sent over there? Do you think that's why they're lying to us? Or, I mean, are they just wanting to insult our intelligence by saying things like, you know, in the news, even when they were talking about the the fall of Mariupol, they said things like uh, uh, the soldiers were being evacuated on buses emblazoned with Z. You mean Russian buses? Like, just say Russian buses. Mm -hmm. Don't say buses with Zs on them. I think it's a a mixture of kind of naivety, media commenters not right not actually being on the ground not knowing what's going on and not you know not wanting to admit that the very rosy cheery picture in the beginning that oh yeah they're really you know they're getting stopped in their tracks this is too costly for for Russia they don't want to they're very committed to that narrative mm-hmm. and it's uh, and and you know the reality is that's <laughs> well, not, not gone exactly like that. So Yeah, we should be more committed to the truth. That is mm-hmm. what we should be committed to. Even if the truth is tough yeah. and not what we want, that we should be committed to that. But yeah. Well, it's tough um, for Lockheed Martin, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> maybe that's what it boils down to. Right. Just keeping it going. Keep those dollars flowing. Well, thank you, Kim. Uh, we appreciate that. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Well, they're still going. Gas prices have hit at least $4 across the country, according to new data released by AAA. Oklahoma, Georgia, and Kansas were the last three states with average prices under $4 until they crossed the line this week. And there are signs that gas is going to get even more expensive. You won't believe this. In Washington state, they're preparing for $10 a gallon gas. That is according to the Daily Mail. The national gas station chain 76 has begun reprogramming pumps to prepare for $10 gallon fuel. 
Woof. <laughs> this comes as the nation's average is at a whopping $4.75, $4.75 a gallon, almost twice the $2.41 average during the Trump administration's last month in office. Oof. Yikes. <laughs> that is pretty bad. So they have to move the decimal point because when you look at the gas, <laughs> the gas pump, right? So it'll say like, Five dollars, you know, here in California where I am, we're at six dollars, six dollar, you know, six point zero six five. So they're gonna have to move the decimal point at those seventy-six stations to make it so that they can actually go for that ten dollar a gallon gas. That is outrageous. I yeah, I drove um I drove to the studio this morning and I've been I've been taking a scooter to the studio most mornings because the weather's finally nice and I like the scooters. Uh, but I drove in this morning, and uh, I hadn't driven the car in a couple of days, and I noticed that we're, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost empty, so I'm going to have to fill up on the way home today. So I, do, I, I haven't done it in a while, so I have no idea what the price is right now in D.C. I think it's, I think it's north of the four, uh, the, the, the middling four. I think it's upper beyond that, but I'm, I'm going to find out. Not looking forward to that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm a non-driver, uh, but uh, gas costing more than the minimum wage in m- much of the country does not sound like a good look. Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, good point. And I guess in Washington, they've even run out of gasoline in certain places. And so they, the, the prices have already gone way up. You know, one of the reasons why they're having such high price gas is because of, of running out of supplies. Mm. So I've seen photographs on Twitter, people tweeting it out. You know, pictures of the gas pump in the $8 a gallon range. It's just, how can people afford this? And then with people going back to work, I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of people are saying to their employers, I just want to, I'm just going to work from home again. And it's not about the pandemic. I just, the, it's the gas pandemic that we're dealing with. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the markets that have some really telling signs for how America's families are facing inflation. Targets reported a stunning 52% drop in profit for the last quarter, signaling that America's families putting major hold on spending as prices continue to soar. Even Walmart, who is famous for the low prices, sounding the alarm on inflation as their stocks hit the lowest level since the 1980s. According to CNBC, rich Wall Street analysts didn't expect Walmart and Target to take such a tumble, but it's actually pretty simple. America's lower income and working families have less money to spend and are no longer going to Target or Walmart to spend money on products they once did. This seems to be obvious to me. The the big brains economists that come on TV uh, are very quick to tell us that the economy does well when rich people have more money to trickle down to the rest of us, but seem to always miss the bit where the products that are being made have to be purchased by someone. And money cannot circulate through the economy unless people are earning wages and are able to actually spend those wages. And Target and Walmart, I think, are saying that the items that are being purchased less right now are those big ticket items. So people aren't buying things like televisions at the moment like they were maybe with some of their money that they were getting, maybe some of that stimmy money they were going and spending it on a new television or something along those lines. But now they're not. So that's why they're saying that they're taking a giant dip. It's those big ticket items. Yeah, well, when asked about the stock market, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said that's not something we keep an eye on every day uh i think (laughs) it probably is it's something someone in the biden administration i'm sure has the job of 
telling the president or his top advisors or his chief of staff what the stock market is doing every day. I think that's <laughs> probably a certainty. So straight up, straight up not true. I, I, is there a disinformation board that can sound off on that soundbite, maybe correct that one? Any fact checkers out there? You know, all, all, all busy uh, keeping uh, baby formula, uh, homemade baby formula out of the hands of starving uh, kids. Okay, okay, no big, no big deal. No big deal. She's, she's having a rough first week. Look, I'm, I'm glad that no one Trial was pointing a, a camera on me during my first week of work, although I guess maybe that's not the case in, in, this, in this show, in this job. But look, I, I have some sympathy for tripping up on camera, but this is a mess. I, and I don't understand why she isn't just a little bit better on her feet in response to a question like that, just anticipating a little bit how a comment like that is going to be read. At the end of the day, of course, spin. Spin, that's your entire job. You know, of course, we are concerned about the average American's ability to afford uh, basic goods, and we are working on a number of things to make that easy. Of course, we just rolled out this intervention to get baby formula flown in, and we're working on other things as well. Stay tuned. I'll get back to you next week. Clearly, they hired the wrong woman. <laughs> I'm not applying. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Maybe she's being honest. Maybe the Biden administration isn't t keeping an eye on the stock market. Maybe they're not paying attention to any of this. Maybe she's just telling the truth. And maybe that's refreshing, actually, rather than a spin master, right? I mean, I mean, is this, I, is this the most incompetent or self-sabotaging administration in the history of presidency? Like, if every, if gas is at the cost of gas is astronomically high, people aren't buying things because it's too expensive at Target's and even Walmart. They're they're going yeah. to, like they're going to get wiped out. No one will. This is no one will vote for Democrats if this is the reality in November, and if this is the reality um, uh, two years after that. Like, do, why don't they understand that yeah. they have to fix this problem? I know they they the problem they want to have to fix is Ukraine for some reason, but that's not the problem people want them to fix. People want them to fix right. the high prices. And per the poll I cited in my radar today, majorities of Americans actually want big solutions to these kinds of problems. People, I think, would be really excited about a can, uh, an administration that said, okay, gas prices are high, we're facing a climate crisis, Maybe this is the time we actually really invest, not $40 billion in Ukraine, but at least we, if we can do that, invest substantively in helping people transition to electric vehicles that can help them mm. get more out of, a, out of a gallon of gas. Maybe it's time to actually revisit some of the very popular programs that we had during the pandemic that did give working class people inflection and injections of money so they could actually take them to the stores and buy things, whether it's baby food or TV that helps the economy go. You know, it, the trickle down stuff is over. The incrementalism is over. People are over all of it. They want to just see that the, the government is doing something. And Joe, I will not use executive authority for anything Biden is basically shouting out to the world, I'm, I have, I, I'm impotent and can't do anything about anything. And the party is going to pay for it in the fall. I agree with you that people are looking for real bold solutions right now, for sure. One thing, though, is that, and I, I've read this before, uh, not only just you mentioning it, but people saying, you know, what is Joe Biden's plan? Is he trying to just allow gas prices to just go through the roof until people give up and say, all right, fine, I'll buy an electric vehicle. All right, fine. You know, I'll go and I'll, I'll get that Prius. Because I have to tell you, it, you can't get your hands on one. Mm. So even if that was the plan, you can't get your hands on one. 
the car dealership is constantly trying to buy my Prius from me mm. at, at, at like worth way more than what mm. it's actually worth. They're trying to buy it. They can't get their hands on used cars, especially of the hybrid or electric version. Tesla can't pump cars out fast enough. Mm. There's they're, they're just not on the market. So I don't even know what their plan is when it comes to that. So that idea that even that I, you know, that I've seen some Republican lawmakers kind of throw out there like, oh, Joe Biden's just trying to get everybody to buy a hybrid or an electric car. That's not actually even realistic. So even if that were the plan, that can't be the plan. It's not going to work. So what is the plan? And that they don't have a plan for us. Instead, it's just, hey, be grateful you're not in Ukraine. I mean, I mean that seems I, to be what they keep telling us. And I do I do have to mention this, right? The Biden administration, the Interior Department recently canceled um, oil leases that would, I, I think, at least the very least show the people that they're committed to doing something to try to bring down, you know, even if it wasn't going to make that much of a difference to bring down the price of oil and they canceled those. Well, I mean, those things aren't going to make a difference because the timeline on actually getting new oil wells to produce is so far in the future, far enough that it's buttoned up against our climate deadlines to, you know, saving the planet. Maybe it would make a difference for the next time this happens. Well, okay. Well, I think the the longer term solution is having, you know, energy independence in the in the form of clean oil. But I'm also struck by, you know, one of Joe Biden's plans in the original Build Back Better was to electrify the school bus force, which not only is a, a lot of the cars on the road, uh, represents a significant amount of traffic on the road, but also is a, a health issue for kids. There's all of these studies about the air quality diminishing around children because of these buses. The plan went down to 3% of school buses being electrified and then got completely cut from Build Back Better. Now, this is going to be an issue for municipalities who have to fill these big trucks up and cart kids back and forth. Now that schools are back open again, this has as a problem with far-reaching implications, and you're not going to be able to cut around the corners of this. I say, look, let's hope Elon is focused equally <laughs> on ramping up production of electric vehicles as he is on this Twitter we, buy. <laughs> we finally we finally got Democrats to recommit to the idea that children should actually be sent to school. <laughs> so, so, of course, it's, I, it's not surprising at all yeah. that there's very little innovation in the school bus space, again, for you know, until very recently the Democratic position on on children in schools was that they should learn from home or not at all. Not to give Joe Biden or the administration any excuses, but right now we also still do have a supply chain problem. Mm -hmm. So one of the issues going on, for example, you know, that a lot of these schools that have been giving some some stimulus money, they haven't even spent, I think 93% of the stimulus money sent to schools has not been spent yet. Mm -hmm. And here in, in Los Angeles, the LA County Public Schools haven't spent a dime of it. Their reason, what they say is, what are we supposed to spend it on? So we can't spend it on, for example, example uh, ventilation for the school system because we can't get the manufacturing. We can't mm. get the uh, the, the supply good. chain yeah, is, we, is a problem. We need to be so, making more things in America. Right. You cannot get around that. We need to be making. We, I, I mean, agree. I think it was you earlier it's, in a segment, um, Kim, who was talking about the the fact that we just are not um, that we can't we're not stimulating the economy and making jobs at home anymore. Like this, this is the fundamental issue that everything is stemming from. It's never going to happen. It was it was fantasy. corporate. It, it corporate is, elites yeah. trying to we skim off to. the top by yeah. f- putting everything never. overseas and also having no storage capacity and warehousing anything at home because they don't even want to pay to store surplus materials so that when something like this happens, we at least have a little bit on, on deck. And if we're worried about yes. what happens next down the pike, Robbie, like you have to start changing how fantasy. we do things. We will, it's never going to happen. It is a matter of again. national security, it Robbie. It, we have to do it. The government is incapable 
of changing the regulatory policies that made it prohibitively expensive to do manufacturing in this country. They will well, never, not with they that will attitude, never right. them. They'll I never, they won't do it. They not won't a good do stump it. speech, They're Robbie. <laughs> You're not ready for anything. <laughs> just, just honesty. All right. Well, this, this has been fun, guys, and we will have more rising for you after this. Former President George W. Bush has had what appears to be a Freudian slip when talking about the war in Ukraine. Let's listen. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh, well, at least he can wow. make a joke about it, I guess. <laughs> that, I some, yeah. It is funny. It's some dark humor, though. I mean, it is, it's funny. There's no way around it. But he shouldn't dark. even be talking on this. Why is he speaking dark. about the war in Ukraine and invasions? I mean, he's like the guy that should be at, this is the time to go take a bath and paint some paintings. <laughs> and he knows right. it. He knows well, it. But he's, right, but he's an expert he's on unjustified invasions of other people's countries. Yeah, this, there could not be a clearer distillation of everything that is wrong with American hypocrisy and the posture that the establishment has taken toward the war in Ukraine than that Freudian slip. I mean, it, you could write thesis after thesis on the layers of irony there. And the fact that, you know, he, he afterward he kind of chuckles and he says, like, oh, it's because I'm old, but also seems to acknowledge in the chuckle that it's true, like he accidentally right. told the truth. You know, there's like a weird contrition, like a weird, like, yeah, right. well, you got me, guys. It was me. It me, Sames. You know, it's a Spider-Man meme with uh, Russia and the United States pointing at each other and, and saying invasion, imperialism. I mean, I think it's a reminder Russia. that no, virtually no one left in the Republican Party will defend the decision to invade Iraq. Probably most of, I don't know that most of George Bush's inner circle even does, or the people who were around then. Jeb Bush, when he ran uh, for president in 2016, he said, yeah, we, you know, knowing what we know now, we actually should, should, we should not have done it. It's his brother. So there, there's no appetite to defend that sort of thing whatsoever. It's, it's just an acknowledged blunder. It's acknowledged by, it was acknowledged by many Democrats at the time, although not all. So many supported it, including candidate Hillary Clinton. But it's, you know, it, it's, it's not something the Republican Party is interested in defending at all. And in fact, they've gone the other way and are now by some measures, at least, the, the less inclined toward uh, military intervention party of the two, uh, which actually yeah. historically was also the case. Like if you go back and start thinking about, uh, I mean, you know, World War II, probably most people think was a war of, of necessity, but that was uh, waged by a democratic president. Uh, so was World War One. So was uh, with the uh, the Korean War at its start, the the Vietnam War until the very end. Right. There's a, the actually in the 20th century, it was a lot of Democrats prosecuting these wars. And there was a uh, there was certain strains of, of uh, isolationism and, uh, and opposition to that kind of thing in the Republican Party. And then the party became gradually much, much more hawkish. And then 
swiftly much more hawkish in the sort of after 9-11, mm. uh, but it ended up kind of being a blip on the map for the Republican Party. It's, it's mm. you know, 10 years in the being the party of, of war, and now it's kind of a little bit, I think, going back to how it was historically throughout the, 20, yeah. the 20th century. Yeah, it's wild how that happened. Sure well, well if, if you think this clip calls for the curb your enthusiasm treatment, you're not alone. Uh, let's take a look at this. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Uh, Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, like, obviously, what we're talking about is, you know, tragedy of horrific proportions. But also, yeah. it's just so rare that you get this level of political honesty. You can't help but enjoy it. I saw, I think, Ryan tweeting that. This is his favorite gaffe of all time. And I think I think I might be with him on that. <laughs> it's acc- accidental honesty. Mm-hmm. Accidental honesty. Yeah. 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 I, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else there is to say about it. It was, it was quite, a, quite, a, quite a moment. Mm. So, well, do we think it'll change anything? Like, you know, there's a world where he says that out loud, kind of looks around the room and has a bull, Bullworth, Bullfinger, no, Bullworth moment, you know, with Warren Beatty. And he says, you know what? I was wrong. And also, what are we doing here? And, you know, what, what, why are we going into Somalia? I I don't get the (laughs) reference you just made. What is that? Uh, It's a movie might be a little bit before your time, uh, Robbie. I know you're, you're the youth in our midst, (laughs) but it was a nineties movie, I think with Warren Beatty and Halle Berry. And it's a presidential candidate who I think has some kind of breakdown and decides to start telling the truth. And what do you know? It made him enormously popular. Also never going to happen. It would. You know, if a politician were to be truthful, it would make them enormously popular. But, you know, what's interesting about this is as how many, you know, we're laughing at his gaffe. Everyone in the room laughed at his gaffe rather than actually kind of gasping. That right. probably would have been a better response or at least mm. a more appropriate response is for people to go, oh, yeah, you know, right. that and, and then maybe have a little bit of self-awareness and some self-reflection and to say, yeah, you know, the United States pointing fingers at Russia, going after Russia with sanctions and all these other, other things for their invasion. Um, I mean, what if the world would have done the same, had the same reaction towards the United States when we invaded Iraq? Mm-hmm. That would have been interesting, you know, uh, but it, that's not what happened. We didn't have the same treatment against us. Russian citizens right now are still, you know, I'm getting married in about three weeks. My best friend is Russian. She cannot leave the country. She can't fly mm. here, mm. be in my wedding. My bridesmaid, and she can't be in my wedding because they're, you know, we're putting restrictions on Russian citizens, blaming them for the actions of their government. And now McDonald's is leaving Russia. You know, there's all of this stuff that's going on to harm the Russian people, to harm the Russian citizens. But that's kind of the MO of the United States, you know, with our sanctions and how we go after countries. We don't target the leaders. We don't we don't punish just the governments. We actually punish the citizens as well. But luckily, you know, the world didn't do that to us. So we don't even know what we, we didn't even get an opportunity, I guess, to get a dose of our own medicine. Kim, I don't know how you're going to live down the my best friend is Russian comment. <laughs> I'm looking forward well, okay, to I can say it. I can say I can mentions. say also that I have I have family. So I have a best friend that happens to be Russian, but I also have family that actually are Ukraine from Ukraine that I've that are here in the United States now. So I have I've, I see both sides, I suppose. Yeah, of course, there's nothing wrong with having a, a Russian best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Many of my best friends are Russian as well. Um, but thank, thank you for that. And um, we will have more rising for you after this.
New York Governor Kathy Hochul has proposed a new plan to combat domestic terrorism following the Buffalo grocery store shooting, which she said is white supremacy in this nation at its worst. The new plan would strengthen state gun laws and investigate social media platforms promoting violent extremism. The announcement from yesterday includes an executive order requiring the state police in New York to seize weapons under the state's red flag law from people determined to be a threat to themselves or others. So I, I was reading, I think, in a New York Times story recently that, you know, this law is in effect, but despite some red flags uh, emerging about the perpetrator, there was never, he wasn't barred from purchasing, you know, his, he, his parents purchased him the gun, right? And he, there was no... Um, you know, oversight that would have prevented him from having access to this, even though he had been pulled aside at school um, he had, because he had made some threats there. He was definitely under the eye of the system. He had been noticed as a potential threat. People said he's the kind of person who would do this. You know, so what do you guys make of this? So really, I mean, it's really, really difficult, I think, to go and try to figure out how to stop this sort of crime from happening and how do they prevent people like this this person who is clearly deranged and crazy, how do they prevent them from getting their hands on weapons? I find it really interesting though that the it seems that the what we're used to, which is always whenever these events happen, there's always this, this, this kind of robust debate about gun laws and restrictions and how we can prevent people from getting access to guns. Um, but in this particular instance, it seems that almost people have given up on that debate a bit and they've moved on now to attacking the free speech, right? So they're right. saying, well, now we've got to go after social media platforms. So we can't actually get any meaningful gun legislation passed to, to keep people safe. And so instead, we're going to move towards how do we prevent these people from even expressing their ideas? But if they can't express their ideas on social media, do you think that's actually going to prevent the crime from happening? No, it's such it's such deflection. I mean, I've complained about this in my radar from earlier this week, but right, she's trying to blame the platforms. She's trying to blame speech for law enforcement failures for or for other failures. We played that video. It was yesterday, right? The video of the or uh, the audio of the uh, it was an interview with the person who said when she dialed nine one one, she's in the grocery right. store. The nine one one operator hung up on her. Why don't you investigate that? That's a state resource. Yeah, investigate the people who actually work for the government whose jobs are to keep us safe who screwed up what did they do wrong maybe they did nothing wrong but that's where we look for for weaknesses in the system to you know deflect this blame oh it's twitch's fault oh it's discord's fault for allowing right. speech so the problem here is to your point robbie there are laws in effect they're not being enforced it is also true that there are, you know, warning signs that exist in the communications people have on these websites that are also not being picked up. So there's two issues here. There's that you can shut down the speech or you can, when the speech is there and maybe should be brought to the attention of law enforcement, acted upon in these red flag laws that come into effect. And there's this third question that I think is interesting and potentially not what the governor is talking about, but the fact that so much active recruiting from white supremacist groups happens through not, you know, it's not like video games is making people violent, but it's that so many of these games have these chat functions now. There are active recruitment efforts that happen through these avenues. And when you read the manifesto, you see that he was at home because of COVID and was radicalized. He was kind of generally disaffected and became increasingly radicalized 
spy communications that were coming through these outlets. And so what to do about that, and then what to do about the fact that a lot of these websites do have a algorithmic push toward more incendiary comment. Is there a responsibility from an outlet to be, instead of promoting cat videos, well, maybe not cat videos since this guy apparently also uh, tortured a cat or something, you know. I had, saw Peter's <laughs> statement. They were very upset um, about it. But, you know, toward something more pleasant and less um, socially maladaptive and instead pushing people, pushing a lot of folks. I see it happening to myself. The algorithm will push you toward the kind of incendiary uh, socially maladaptive content. Should they be responsible for doing that? But it's just, it, it, right, it, and that could be bad on its own, but I don't know that them doing that makes people, because the, the numbers of people who are going to go out and, and, and shoot a bunch of people in an insane, you know, orgy of violence like this guy, like, it's so rare. It is rare. It doesn't happen a lot. It seems like it happens a lot because we pay a lot of attention to it. There's a lot of violence in this country, but it's not, actually, mass shootings constitute a very, very low percentage That's of all true, violence. That's true, but it's still so much more than it ever happens in any other country where you don't have, like we have, more guns than human beings, gun right. laws that people largely agree with. It's not, this isn't a bipartisan divide on common sense gun reform. It's just that the, the laws are not enforced, and then some laws are not even implemented because there is so much lobbying from the NRA and those kinds but of I, I don't think the passed. guns are out there. We can't wave a magic wand and make them all disappear. We can't even make a significant chunk of them disappear. And I don't, I am not really persuaded that significant new restrictions on uh, buying guns or possessing guns would substantially reduce crime, given that mo most of the violent crime is guns out in the community, just one-off shootings, not the, this kinds of mass episodes of violence. There are also a lot, a lot of people don't know, a lot of gun crime, um, uh, uh, death by firearm is, is suicide. Correct. There's probably a better argument yeah. to be made that gun restrictions would reduce that, but I, I, at the end of the ideologically, I'm, I'm not super inclined so to what do you limit do about people's that? rights because other people will misuse well, what, and, but what about, I mean, but here's the thing, there's positive freedoms and there's negative freedoms, right? So right. what is the right as an American citizen to walk around, to be in your church, to go to the grocery store, to be in your synagogue and not fear that a gunman is going to come in who has been radicalized, uh, perhaps purposefully because the algorithm pushed you in a certain kind of way, perhaps because he just lives in an environment where he feels like his, he doesn't have a lot of opportunities and his precarity and social economic factors have weighed in on him, perhaps because he was radicalized by someone in his real life, whatever the reason. It, great replacement theory is something that he's seeing on a lot of these you know, right-wing websites. Whatever the reason, how, what, is, what is your freedom as an American to be free from thinking that you're going to be gunned down in those kinds but of if situations? We, if we disarm that person we also to be because we have to be consistent we end up we disarm people who live in unsafe communities well, that stop, are not being protected who, by stop, the police who I, want we're not talking about disarming though we're talking about what, what policy interventions even right. putting gun gun regulations aside because as i said before this is an issue where we have regulations in place that aren't being enforced so assuming that that Kathy's right, that we just need to enforce things. What to do from a policy perspective? Because that's how we open this, right? What is the policy intervention that can help people not be radicalized in these ways? Or are we saying, well, it's not my church, it's not my grocery store, I'm not the one getting gunned down, so I'm kind of comfortable with the status quo? Because that's, I think, what a lot of people who are the victims of these crimes are feeling like right now as the, the targeted nature of these is kind of pushed under the rug for a conversation about either gun reform or mental illness, which I also am not entirely clear was the case here. When I read his manifesto, it was a very cogent, very racist, very anti-Semitic, but very cogent 
an explanation of why he thinks black people are inferior, Jewish people are inferior, a little bit like a small short paragraph on Asians and Arabs, <laughs> but that, you know, there's a, a white genocide that he perceives to be in place because of replacement theory and that he needs to go and even the playing field by killing black people. Like, how do you prevent that kind of radicalization from happening? I'd love to hear that I kind think, of a conversation. You know, a lot of times I think crazy people don't seem crazy. So I, I think it's easy to kind of look at things like this and then to say, well, this guy didn't sound crazy, even though I think a lot of that document was copy and paste. I don't think a lot of it actually came from him. But crazy people have a good are oftentimes able to come across as not crazy. The issue was that when you actually look at all of his ideas, a lot of them contradicted one another. Like when he was saying what his political ideology was, he was claiming that he was, you know, had spent many, many years as a communist and then moved a bit more to the right from communism and has moved into eco-fascist nationalism, uh, well, socialism. And a lot of people's ideology shift. We're, we're going through a great shift as a, a whole nation right now, as so many people feel abandoned by both parties and people are all over the map and changing. You know, Elon Musk just said that he's shifting from voting Democratic historically to, sure. to voting Republican. I don't think that's a sign of someone being deranged. Well, except this person says in the same document, in the same one document says, you know, leftism uh, leads to degenerate society and conservatism is uh, leads to is like synonymous with corporatism. And I'm yeah, uh, in capitalism. And I don't want to politics. He's, he's, right, he's taking right. a line that a lot of, you know, conservative populists are taking, which is a, a dis dissatisfaction with both corporate parties and saying, you know, Republican conservatism is a problem and leftism is a problem. I'm charting my own path. I mean, I, I frankly think that's really aligned with, frankly, what a lot of Americans are feeling right now, which is what is so troubling to me about reading the document. When I did uh, reporting on sort of the alt-right a few years ago, I, I went to some of their the rallies they had in D.C. to speak to, you know, the, what what brings you to this kind of ideology, this event. It seemed like it was a 33%, 33%, 33% breakdown, basically, between people who were... Uh, so the first category is people who were almost racist by from birth. Like, they had parents or grandparents who would have been in the KKK. Like, white racism was sort of baked into their family experience. And then there was another group of people who were sort of... This guy is kind of straddling the latter two categories. People who were... Uh, radicalized online, but it was it was uh, like irony first. It was trolling the libs kind of thing, and then it's like they're pretending it's well. I, I don't really think this. I'm just trying to trigger you. And but if you do that for long enough, then eventually you just you do. It's not ironic anymore. You just ha do have those ideas. And then there's a third group that is just looking for the most extreme thing to kind of to try to wring some meaning out of a really miserable antisocial existence mm -hmm. a, a person who would right who would could could have done occupy wall street and then well they're not radical enough what's the yes yeah, eco terrorism well they're not radical enough you know what is the alt rights ideas like they could have joined isis they're just looking for some crazy thing to shake up like the because their lives are miserable and they're unhappy and they're mentally ill in, in some way or they're mentally inadequate in some way. Yeah, and if people yeah. are having those options or get put into one of those slots, I want to figure out how to get people to go do an Occupy Wall Street or at least <laughs> knitting yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not buying a gun and murdering 10 people in a right. grocery store out of racial hatred. Right. 
I think we just have to, uh, you know, really reform how our country is running. And it's not about taking guns away or or changing how people access social media. But instead, it's about lifting people up into a better economic situation. That is what we know, that crime is connected to economic economic problems. So, I mean, if, mm-hmm. if people are not feeling like they have opportunity, they and this we see this all around the world. It's not just here in the United States, in certain parts of the world where there are groups like ISIS, we see people that when they don't feel like they have opportunity, they do become extremely radical, well beyond any sort of radicalization we see here in this country. So people can be radicalized very easily if they have nothing else to latch onto, like what Robbie is mentioning. And that I think that is really what people, what we need is more of a discussion of how do we rebuild the middle class? How do we get yeah. the American people feeling like there's a future to actually get excited about? That's what we need. And how do we restore social ties in a, is many of which were eroded during the for other reasons, but also because of the pandemic, because of the, the need or if you think it was a need you know, to, to socially distance and to lock down a lot of community ties, uh, neighborly kind of behavior and, and community events and services fraying or going away. And, and which puts this again, it's a small subset of people who are inclined toward antisocial behavior or to violence, who need to be you know, captured by those resources, those community support, family support, other institutions, so that they don't you know, fall on the other side of the line and start doing, doing bad things. And that's unfortunately that we, we let a lot of that lapse. And I think it's part yeah. of the problem. And to your yeah. point about antisocial behavior, Kim, another correlation, I saw, you know, Crystal Ball talking about this, and I talked about it a little bit on my podcast today with a guest where we unpack some of the issues that are raised by the manifesto, is that there is this correlation between rising crime rates and military interventionism. Our, our own mm. country fighting, there's a correlation with people coming home from wars and not being able to distinguish what it meant to say that person is the enemy, go and shoot them, that's how you resolve conflict and what people feel at home. And I do think that there is a certain modeling of conflict resolution that's going on where people really, when you read the manifesto, he feels like he is at war. He feels like there's a national, like yeah. a global war against the white race and he's being replaced, you know? And the answer for him is not to figure out how to encourage white people to have more babies if that's your bag. It means literally exterminating other people, doing a genocide against other people because he feels like a genocide is being done against him. And I think that we have to reckon with the particular you know, noxious nature of that kind of ideology. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will have a great show for you all. So stay tuned for that. And we will be back with you next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, We're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All right, guys, we're out of here. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.